Hello, this is Catherine. Welcome to Friendly Anarchism. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Um, my name is Christian Chocolis. I am a blogger about Marxism and Christianity on Patheos. Awesome. I read some of your articles. They're very interesting. So. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast for a while as well. It's also interesting. Thank you. Um, so, do you want to start with God or Marx? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's the difference? Oh, no, um, oh. <laughs> it's just a joke. It's like a trick question. Um, <laughs> we could start wherever you want. I mean, let's start with God because that's you know, in the beginning there was God. Yeah, so you're, you're, that's as good a place. Yeah, we're supposed to start with God, right? Generally. Yeah, I think so. Let's go back though, because I think there is sort of almost a religiosity to communism sometimes. How people talk about Marx. I have to say, there's a little bit of that worship in there. Yeah, um, so like I was saying, I think um, Marx, whether he would have admitted it or not, was uh, very influenced by um, Christianity in a lot of ways. His father was a preacher, and uh, I think a lot of that definitely rubbed off on him. Um, I mean, even the phrase, uh, from each according to his ability to each according to their need, that kind of rough cut comes from the Christian scriptures. So I think it's definitely built into the structure of communism and Marxism. And on the other side of it, yes, uh, I will admit that there is a lot of almost worship of Marx and other figures of Marxism by a lot of communists today. And I think that uh, that can be problematic sometimes. Mm -hmm. But um you know, there's people, I think it's for the same reason that religion has endured for so long. People want figures that they can look up to and idolize and kind of base their identities around them. Mm -hmm. And whether that's Jesus or Karl Marx or Vladimir Lenin, people are always going to find someone to do that to. Ooh. Um, the idea of basing your identity on Vladimir Lenin, that's, that's a little <laughs> scary to me. He was, uh, have not... you met tankies on the internet? <laughs> yeah, I have. It's, it's scary. It's, so that's one of the things, Lenin specifically, I'm not sure how Lenin has gotten so normalized as far as in leftist culture, because he was not a super nice guy. Um, well, I don't know necessarily about that. I think the thing about Lenin is that he died only a few years into the Soviet Union's existence. So I think that it's a little hard to know for sure um, what he would have done had he lived longer. I, uh, I kind of have an ambivalent take on Lenin. Uh, what came after him, of course, is a totally different story. But um, on balance, I don't think Lenin is... Uh, I mean, I don't mind people admiring and looking up to Lenin. I think a lot of his writing was very useful, and I think what he was trying to accomplish was very admirable. And, you know, of course we can debate if he went about it the right way. Um, I'm sure you would probably say no. But, um, but yeah, I just, I mean, I think in terms of history, you know, there's good and the bad, and I think you have to have a nuanced take on somebody like him. <laughs> I uh, um, hard sell, hard sell, hard sell. Because the problem with these, this sort of like vanguardist 
uh, thing is Lenin was totally cool with a lot of people being killed in the name of future progress. And of course. I guess that's fairly normal as far as history goes. Um, but also right. not really not really okay, you know. Especially a lot of them were yeah, anarchists. No, I, totally. So, little bit little bit on the personal side there. There's a, there does tend to be a um, a correlation between vanguardism, especially the sort of like old school vanguardism and a lot of anarchists being like murdered horribly. So Right. Uh, yeah, there were a lot of anarchists who were branded as counter-revolutionaries and um, not treated so well. And I think, um, you know, people talk about how they treated the white reaction forces during the Russian Civil War. And, um, you know, that's one thing. But it's another thing when you're talking about other opposition socialist parties. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is one of the huge mistakes that was made in the Soviet Union is that, uh, you know, they kind of, they put the party over everything else, and I think that you need some opposition if you're going to have a functional state that actually works in the interest of the people. So how do you approach tankies? Like, how do you deal with tankies? Um, you know, it's hard. I, uh, I try to stay as agnostic as possible on the questions of, was Stalin a bad guy? Was Lenin a bad guy? Because I, it's for to me, it's not always worth relitigating the past. About, I mean, I, I'm I don't defend those people, but I don't attack them necessarily either. Mm. I feel like my what I try to do with Tinkies is try to encourage them to focus more on the future and on building a revolutionary movement that can work for people today, knowing what we know now. Um, Usually I've found that some of them are pretty receptive to that kind of message. Um, Most of the tankies I know, they work well with anarchists and they work well with um, non-Marxist, Leninist, communists. but of course, then there are the ones that there's just no talking to them. That you know, if you don't, if you don't admit every other sentence that Stalin did nothing wrong, then they want nothing to do with you. And those people, I just stay away from them because it's not worth it. It's not yeah. worth pissing everybody on the left off. Yeah. Here's my one of the struggles I've had with communism, and just sort of is, I feel like the word communism at this point is sort of meaningless because the, it's such a big tent word. It goes all, from all the way anti-authoritarian left all the way to truly basically fascist authoritarian right. You can be a communist and be anywhere along, you know, self-identified as a communist and be anywhere along those lines. So, like, it's that sort of, like, smushiness between the left and right within communism can be hard for me to manage. Um, you can, you know... So it sort of feels like every time I meet a communist, it's like, okay, well, are you, like, the good kind? Or are you, like, the bad kind? Like, <laughs> how do I, sure. you know what I mean? So, like, telling me um, like, how communist doesn't, like, mean doesn't really help me understand where somebody stands politically. I do. I think it's, I mean, it's more helpful for me to, you identify, the, so you would not identify as an anarcho-communist? Well, I, I prefer just the term anarchist, because... Anarcho-communist, you know, generally, generally, like, just the basic term anarchist denotes anarcho-communism, but it's communism in the sense of um, believing in the commons, you know, 
So right. like not the sense of believing in any sort of movement through the a state structure. So that's I, so I like using just the word anarchist because it gets confusing for people. Like oh, what anarcho-communism has the word communist in it, and then communism has all of these other connotations. This as opposed to you know so like I feel like the an, the word anarcho-communist is kind of outdated at this point and not a very super helpful term, even if you know what it actually means, you know. Yeah. I, uh, I I definitely agree with you that the word communism has become so muddled, in, especially in the United States, where, it, like you said, it means anything from Joseph Stalin to somebody like Karl Marx or Karl Kautsky. And, and all these people obviously have very different views on the role of the state and on what type of society we need to build and on how to build it. But... For me, I think that maybe it's my bias because I'm a writer and I work with words, but I think that people need words in order to understand concepts. I think that they need clearly defined. And I just don't see um, any way to rephrase the goals of the, the ultimate goals of all the left, whether we're statists or libertarian leftists. I don't see another word that can take the place of communism to describe the type of society that I think at heart we all want to create. We just disagree on how to get there. I agree that words are super important, and words are how we conceptualize concepts, which is sort of the problem with the word communism at the same time, right? Because we don't have another word for it. I mean, I do that. I prefer just straight up an anarchist society would be good. Yeah. Um, but... So, yeah, so... But even then, you get people who are anarcho-capitalists. And, right. <laughs> and, of course, I mean, they're not, quote-unquote, real anarchism, but it's just, I mean, it just shows people can always co-opt yeah, uh, this word for a movement. That's true. So then, like, it's sort of the same thing, saying, um, I like the word anarchist, but people co-opt the word anarchist, and you're saying, well, you like the word communism, and people co-opt the word communism, kind of, is... Right. Right. Except that... And Mao called himself a communist, you know. So. Yeah, and it was, I mean, with anarchism, too, since since the 70s or 80s, to a lot of people, anarchy is just a byword for chaos. Right. They don't understand that it's a specific movement relate, relating to the state and institutional power structures. They think it means everybody do whatever you want and it's a free-for-all. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with how our language is functioning on the left, to explain ourselves, I think, to our, to each other and to the outer world. So, like, as a writer, how do you kind of try and manage that, so the semantic problems with being on the left? Well, I don't have the answer yet. What I'm doing right now is I'm throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, at least through my writing. Um, right now, I'm identifying myself as a Christian Marxist. I think that I think that Marxist is a sort of a way to kind of reclaim Marx from the Marxist-Leninist states of the 20th century, which have definitely clouded, you know, the entire left for a lot of Americans. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, in different pieces, I'll say I'm a socialist, I'll say I'm a leftist, I'll say I'm a communist. It kind of, I'm trying to see what people respond to the most, because mm -hmm. on, uh, on my blog where I write for it, 
gets sent to an audience of mostly liberals right. and some very conservative reactionaries. That's what the site Pathos is. To my knowledge, I'm the only explicit anti-capitalist leftist on that site. They have um, dozens of bloggers. So I'm kind of seeing what people respond to. And uh, when I wrote the piece about Christian Marxism, I got emails and Facebook messages from people being like, you know, a lot of people were saying, hey, you know, I never thought of it that way, but that makes sense, and I'm a Christian Marxist, too. Um, <laughs> cool. yeah. So, I mean, not, you know, not hundreds, but I got probably four or five, which is a good response for me, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is it you like about Marxism? Um, my favorite thing about Marxism is the idea of historical materialism, which is, um, you know, the way that Marxists are supposed to analyze and understand history and society. Um, and it's a way of looking at it that kind of assumes the world is made up of material things and the material aspects of world, the uh, natural aspects of world are kind of the driving force in history as opposed to supernatural or idealist. So that's most important for me. That's the thing that I like about it the most. But um, I also, I am reading very slowly um, Capital, Marx's hugely long multi-volume critique of capitalism. And uh, it has helped me look at the society we live in and understand economics in a way that I have never done before. Um, what was interesting about me when I first got into Marx is that most of his writing is a critique of either different philosophies or a critique of capitalism. There's not a lot in there about this is how we defeat capitalism and this is how we build a new socialist society. It wasn't really focused on that. And I think that also leads to why um, someone like Vladimir Lenin and his cohort dominated all types of socialism in the 20th century because Marx didn't really leave a blueprint. So uh, someone like Lenin came in and Stalin and all of the Bolsheviks and the people that followed after them, and they kind of had to pick up from Marx's critique and then build a way forward from that. I think it's interesting to go back a little bit about the materialism as a spiritual, as a religious person, to be drawn to materialism as a driving force. You know, because I'm, yeah. I'm a mystic, so I believe that the um, spiritual life and that sort of, not, I wouldn't say supernatural, but sort of like the porousness to divinity that we move through is a very important part of how humans relate to each other and to the world. So what's your, how do you, how does your Christianity, how does your take on spirituality tie into that materialism? It has changed through, um, over the years. Now I'm finally, over the past maybe two years, I've become comfortable with um, the idea that spirituality um, can also be a material, natural process, that it doesn't necessarily have to be um, mystical or supernatural or whatever word you want to use. I, uh, I used to call myself, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm agnostic about the existence of a deity or of supernatural things. Um, with you know, historical materialism, it's it's more about that materialism is the driving force behind human history, not necessarily of every single event that ever happens to people. Hmm. Um, 
So a couple years ago, I started identifying as a Christian atheist um, because I thought it was, I mean, partially I thought it was edgy and it would get clicks <laughs> when I blogged about it, but also because it was, it was describing how I was starting to feel about God. Mm-hmm. I was starting to feel that, you know, the old way that I had understood God as like a literal being with its own identity living in some alternate dimension or something like that. I was starting to feel like, you know, I I think that was a naive way of looking at it. I don't know that there is an actual being out there. But now I think I prefer to say non-theist because I I don't, I I have pretty much fully rejected theism. But like I said, I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on the existence of any type of supernatural being that was the creator of the universe. Um, for me, Christian, when I say I'm a Christian, I mean that I am a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, for a long time, I've been non-Trinitarian, um, and that led to me taking a harder look at the scriptures and the history of the early Christian church and being comfortable with outright rejecting the divinity of Christ. Mm. And at this point, um, you know, there's a movement called Jesusism which is kind of where you get your morals and ethics from Jesus, but you don't think he was a god, Mm. you think he was just a man, or he was just a prophet. Mm. And I'm very sympathetic to that type of take on it, but the reason I still prefer to call myself a Christian is because I don't want to distance myself from the religious practice and traditions of the Christian Church. And I also think that um, the term Christ and Messiah has a very powerful and profound meaning mm-hmm. in its ancient context, in the context in which you know it had when Jesus was alive, and I would like to reclaim that context for the modern era. Mm, yeah, I hear you on that one. As far as how I feel about God, I totally hear you. As far as I don't, I don't believe that there's a big man in the sky. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of people, especially our age, like I think millennials, are all kind of rejecting that idea that sort of like personified even you know authoritarian um god um i do sometimes feel like i'm being guided by spirit but i don't know if that um you know i don't know i don't see it necessarily as like a a a, you know a person or like a, a separate existence from just like being driven by your gut through a uh, rootedness in sort of the divinity of the world. And I see our prophets as sort of being people that were very rooted in that source, you know? So like, yeah. as far as Jesus's divinity, I would say, um, I do believe that there was divinity there, but maybe not in the sort of like traditional Christian context idea where he is literally God, but as somebody as a prophet right. who is like Especially, especially rooted in that like source of divinity, you know. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I just think it comes down to again semantics. It's how we understand divinity and spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, you know, tying into leftism comes from a different place than you. Sounds like you know for the materialism because for me the well probably for you too that being driven by Jesus Christ is being driven by that need for social justice um for that need to be taken to take care of the poor you know and um and i i don't see that necessarily as a material problem but as a 
you know, a spiritual problem. People talk about, like, we've got a morality problem, and I don't know if I like the word morality and ethics, but the idea that um, if we are, we're so separated from each other, like, you have to be separate from the divine, you have to be separate from humanity to be able to not feel, to have no empathy and not act, you know what I mean? So it's like, if people, if people tie into that, just that source from which we all feel and come, then you you have to act in social justice, right? Right. Uh, I totally agree with you. I think that the way I would reframe that in in a more materialist way, if I if I can do that, yeah, is that I would say that all spirituality is, and I think that humans are fundamentally and intrinsically spiritual creatures. Mm-hmm. But for me, I understand spirituality as the yearning to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Yes, absolutely. And, and right. And for me, that doesn't need to have any type of um, extra natural basis. For me, I think that that higher purpose can be something as simple as just our human community. Mm-hmm. And that's where the passion for social justice comes from, because if somebody else is suffering I think Bernie Sanders said something similar to this when he was running for president. Um, You know, if someone else in the world is suffering, then I'm suffering too. You know, I'm not to say that I feel I have the same experience as people who've suffered under the worst oppression in the world, but just that we're all part of a community. We're part of something bigger than ourselves, and we should make that thing, that human community, the best it can be, and that means ending suffering and oppression for all of us. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. So can I ask you, you said that you also came to faith after kind of an atheistic upbringing. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I did. So, I mean, I grew up with um, both of my parents were the black sheep in their family who had left the church. And so they were both pretty hardcore atheists, but also very open. They didn't want to direct their children to away from spirituality necessarily, but I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up, um, I know, very, very science-minded in the, in the atheist science sense, um, yeah. you know, all through high school, all through my early 20s and everything, just very, very, uh, well, not totally my early 20s, but very much just considered myself an atheist. Um, but I feel like I've always had maybe some kind of connection to something larger or desire to be, I don't know, feeling like there's more to the world, that there's like a a deeper reality than the one that we experience, just sort of if you aren't sort of practicing a spiritual, if you don't have a spiritual practice. Um, which Which I think was very vague for me until I actually started a spiritual practice, because it's through that work that I've done in the Quaker church that I have found a sort of a deeper, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I'm using, talking about semantics, like a thicker reality that is like more encompassing of more things. And like, it has this, like what keeps me in this like space of larger perspective, you know, and it, which takes work. Yeah, which takes work. And so like I've, I, I came and the funny part about coming to Christ specifically is that I was definitely did not see that coming. <laughs> that hit me from the, from the back, like, you know, because I started as a Quaker. It's like, oh, well, you know, but they're basically, 
radicals or progressives. Like, I don't have to, like, they're very wishy-washy on the whole God thing, and it's all very personal. And then um, I just picked up the Bible, and I think part of what happened is that I wasn't raised Christian. And so when I read the Bible... I don't have any of the backstory that they tell you. I, I haven't, there's no, I don't, I didn't have any of the dogma. I didn't have any of the, like, telling me what it's supposed to mean, all that stuff driven. So when I read it, I saw something totally different. I saw Jesus as this super snarky guy that's, like, back talking to everybody, <laughs> that, like, has a great sense yep. of humor, like, a super great sense of humor. And it's like, I get why it's for the poor and for the oppressed because. If you don't think it's funny to, like, make fun of rich people, then you're not going to get the joke. Like, you just don't get it. You know, I think my favorite... Wait a minute. Let's see if I can find the actual... I have my, I have my Bible right here. Um, my very, very favorite... As do I. As do you? All right. Let's, let's Bible it up. I have my favorite um, Bible verse is, Have you not heard what David did? <laughs> Like, that is, I think that's the funniest shit I have ever heard. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I don't think people, you know, people say it all, like, serious and solemnly, but basically that story, for the people that aren't biblical, um, is the um, gleaning of the grain story. Um, yeah. When Jesus is pulling a direct action, he it's totally set up. You can tell it's set up. He's, like, going to yep. do something illegal on the worship of Sabbath in front of the Pharisees, just, like, blatant, like, I'm doing this, fuck you very much, right? And yeah, he, so he's doing this thing, and the Pharisee comes up to him and says, you can't do that, it's against the thing. And so Jesus says, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Have you not heard what David did? You say you're a religious scholar, but obviously you don't know anything. I'm going to, like, school you right now. It's just the snarkiest line, and I did not expect that. And so, like, I was immediately hooked. I was like, okay, okay, Jesus seems pretty rad. What is, <laughs> I'm going to read more about this dude, you know? Like, what did you, why, yeah. why, why Jesus? Like, of all the different, if you started at, like, a, a non-religious space, like, what was it about Christ specifically that got you hooked? Um, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. It, it was very similar for me that since, because I wasn't really raised to be very Christian, I was coming to the Bible without all of the dogma that people get from growing up, going to church, and being told all this stuff when they're a kid. It just, I mean, it helps you see it in such a different way than I think most people do. Um, for me, um, the thing about Jesus was when I actually started to seriously read the Bible instead of just, you know, kind of pretending and being a poser about it, when I actually read it, I... I I realized, like, I don't understand any of this. because and Maybe that's one of the downsides of not being raised in a church, but I was reading it, and I'm like, who are the Pharisees? Why, like, what is, why are the Romans in Jerusalem? Like, so it, that really inspired me to learn more about it so I, was un, so I could understand the context behind all of it, because if you're just a regular, you know, 21st century person in the West, and you don't have any type of background in this history, mm -hmm. a lot of it to you is going to be very obscure. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Gospels never explain what the, who the Pharisees were, for right. example. It's your source of knowledge. Um, that's, yeah. that's my favorite example to use, because I guarantee you, if you went out on the streets on a Sunday, after, on a Sunday morning after church left out, and just did, like, interviews with people coming out of church and asked them to explain what a Pharisee was, I guarantee 99 out of 100 people would have no idea. 
Um, so I started reading uh, books about the historical Jesus because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to know the history behind it. And for me, it was that that really captivated me and um, set my heart on the path of following Christ. When I learned um, about the methods for reconstructing the historical Jesus and the different um, kind of paradigms that historians have had for the past 200 years for understanding him, Mm -hmm. I just thought it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever heard in my life. And that was the moment when I really knew for the first time what I wanted to do with my life. Um, before that, I, I don't know, I wanted to be like a rock star or things like that. And when I started learning about the historical Jesus, I was like, oh, I want to study the historical Jesus for the rest of my life. That's what I want to do. And mm. um, yeah, so that's really what it was for me. Yeah, that's, yeah, the fa- it's fascinating. Actual Christian history um, is, yeah. is fascinating. Like, it gets so radical. I mean, like, the feminist aspect to the early church is just fascinating to me. Um, yep. you know, like, most of, like, Jesus's closest disciples were women, and, like, were given roles, yeah. equal roles in the church, and, like, they were the ones at the tomb, like, they were the ones serving, like, at the cross, like, they were, and they were never doubting, you know, there was none of this Paul crap, <laughs> like, there was none of this, like... What's amazing to me is that I mean, in a in the first century CE in in Rome, you know, in the Roman Empire and in Palestine, I mean, it was such a patriarchal society. So, I mean, we live in a patriarchal society, but nothing compared to what it was like back then when women were basically chattel. And the fact that given that so much material, like pro-woman material, made it into the Gospels, I mean, can you imagine all of the stories and all of the quotes that didn't make it in? Yeah, I know. I wonder about what was lost, you know. I mean, you have to dig a little bit. Have you heard of um, St. Tecla? See, this is one of those things. There's like a million saints. Yes. You know St. Tecla? No way. Yeah, um, I know this. I read about the story in, in some book. Um, she was... Was she in a... Was she in a coliseum or in a like a gladiator battle is that who i'm the right person yeah 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 you're thinking of the right person the story is of um paul and saint tecla um right 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 right. she was a colleague of paul right i remember yeah she's so rad she's my patron saint for sure um i picked one i'm not catholic but i'm like she's so cool i'm gonna have a patron saint anyway (laughs) (laughs) so like yeah yeah saint tecla is this crazy story um that made it through hell and high water and seems like there were probably a lot more stories like this one that got edited and got lost because it seems to be the, absolutely the, yeah so it seems to be like all the women prophets and all the women um you know um saints and things has just been edited out so you have all these virgin martyrs which sucks <laughs> and, you know what i mean like all yeah. these delicate people but then you've got you've got these remnants you know you've got these remnants of stories like St. Tecla, who was this woman who heard Paul and was just so taken with Paul's word that she didn't have to get married, you know, and like getting married, that meant you were somebody's property and you were spitting out babies the rest of your life. And that was your life. And, um, so Paul going out there and saying, no, women don't have to be married. That's like a pretty big deal. That's controlling your body. You know, that's being given. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like she hears that and she refuses to get married. They try and 
burner at the stake for it. Um, God steps in and like douse, like has a water fountain that like come up and like douse right. her flames out. And she, everyone is so shocked and she leaves to the next town. Um, some rich man decides she's really pretty and wants to marry her. And she <laughs> says no. So to make a point of her bad behavior, he tries to rape her in the street and she defends herself, physically defends herself. It says in the thing, like, she rips his cape and um, basically, like, beats him up to the amusement of the townsfolk. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from, from, a, from a, like, religious text. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that story. Yeah, I love that story. And, uh, you know, it just keeps going. You know, like, she, she got, and then they throw her into a ring, and she basically started women's riots. Like, the women in the town were so on her side, they just, like, basically rioted in the Gladiators Stadium, and they were, like, throwing stuff. And, you know, it just, it's an amazing story. And so I wish that stuff like that had lasted, and that there's stuff like that, that people don't know anything about this, like, radical Christian past, you know? Right. Um, a great example of that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the scholar John Dominic Crossan, but, um, okay, so he does a lot of work on the historical Jesus, and then lately he's been doing more theology work, but um, he's my favorite New Testament historian, and he makes a point in a book called The Birth of Christianity, where he really goes, and it's a very dense kind of scholarly book, but he um, he really goes in about um, how the Jesus movement, what he understands as, and what I understand as the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus called his movement, mm-hmm. how it was organized and what like concrete goals it really tried to achieve. And um, he shows through just exhaustive pouring over the text in Greek and pouring over um, like other texts that didn't make it into the Bible and uh, other related texts from Roman sources and Jewish sources, he shows that when, when Jesus does the thing where he sends his disciples out in pairs to all the villages in Galilee, uh-huh. that what that means, and it's kind of coded, and you'll never know this just from reading the Gospels in an English translation, but if you really look at the evidence, sending them out in pairs, he was sending them out one man and one woman. Oh, really? It was a mixed sex that was the point of that because women couldn't travel alone in that time Hmm. that's why they had to go out in pairs because he had women disciples who were proselytizing and spreading the good word and evangelizing and that's just i mean that's something like you know that he was excommunicated from the catholic church for writing this kind of stuff this scholar that i'm talking about so obviously most christians are not ready to hear that kind of thing but I mean, if you look at the evidence, it was a, the kingdom of God was a profoundly radical, revolutionary, feminist, liberation movement at the time. And most Christians have no idea, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I look back at learning about these sort of like basic, you know, communes, you know, they had these separate little communes that feel very anarchic to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, they were setting up All parallel... All the disciples were of one heart. Yeah, and the kingdom of God, were, they were setting up parallel power structures and parallel societies and rejecting the existing governments of the day and living, um, you know, we talk about living um, prefiguratively, you know? So, like, you live, yeah. you live prefiguratively to create a new society and you live prefiguratively to create the um, kingdom of God on earth. You know, which is a, which is an important part of much of anarchist practice is the idea of living prefiguratively. It's like that's how, you know, it's not all of it, of course. It's like you have to you have to demand you have to change and abolish the existing power structures. But prefigurative living 
is something that has been a huge part of both anarchic practice and Christian practice for a long time. I mean, that's where um, Tolstoy's whole thing was, was a lot about that, you know, he's got those little things um, in Russia. Yep, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I read The Kingdom of God is Within You, uh, I think, when I was in eighth grade, and I didn't understand most of it, but, uh, but that kind of first was what got me interested in religion in general. Um, I definitely see what you mean about um, prefigured living. I, I mean, what I always like to say, and I know, like you said, you don't like the word communism, but if you use the word communism the way that, you know, in its original meaning before the 20th century happened, mm-hmm. it describes a stateless, classless society, basically. Um, and <laughs> that is the goal of the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus wanted to accomplish. If you look at all of his teachings in the Gospels, that's the Gospel. Mm-hmm. That the Kingdom of God is a society without hierarchy, without social classes, without any type of authority of one yeah. person over any other person. Yeah, and no money. No money. Right, and no money, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, so this like a very... And, you know, that's why I say the goals of Marxism and anarchism are basically the same for most people. Of course, there are outliers. We just disagree on how to get there. So my question about how to get there, though, is I feel like the three... I see three main tenets of Marxism, and I feel like they've all been disproven or obsolete. (laughs) So, like, I I feel like... Okay. Okay, so here, let me... So hear me out. I feel like... So one of them, one of the main tenets of what I... When I read about Marxism, sort of, is... Um, the idea that you have to move through capitalism, capitalism matures, and then you can create um, communist society after that, right? Uh, uh-huh. But I think Marx totally, understandably at the time, underestimated the ability of capitalism to destroy everything. And at this point, the idea that we can move through capitalism to something else is, I feel like, not not an okay, like, we can't, you can't wait for capitalism to mature, because it'll kill everything, you know what I mean? So, right, uh, so are you referring to kind of, like, the idea that, uh, like, climate change, which is primarily driven by capitalism, is going to wipe out the human race before we can stop it? Right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's no way Marx could have predicted climate change, and I totally get that, (laughs) um, at least on that point, and I want to let you, you know, go through the other... Uh, the other two versions of Marxism, but at least to that one, what I would say is it's not about letting capitalism mature and let it implode on itself. Um, and, it's more, and I think the Soviet Union is mm-hmm. proof of this, that you have to let capitalism get to the point where the productive forces of society have matured enough that once we institute a socialist society, we have the power to take care of everybody. Mm. And that did not happen in Russia. Russia was still a semi-feudal um, economy when the Bolsheviks took power. Yeah. And that's why they had to do all that rapid industrialization, which led to a lot of the famines and the problems that they had. Well, um, hold, on. On I, that, hold on. On that point, though, I think one of the main problems there was that, the, that Marx, and other communists at the time rejected the idea that the peasant class had any worth or should be involved and concentrated only on the proletariat. And like that's a big that was a huge point of dissension between Bakunin and Marx was the fact that the peasant class should be not even for Bakunin not even just involved but like the main driver of revolution and Marx um rejected that entirely so then you end up with this feudal system 
where during the Re Russian Revolution, the peasants were organizing and were doing a great job, but then because the vanguard is the vanguardists, you know, disregarded their work as um, in sort of an elite in an elitist way, were able to run roughshod over that in order to try and, you know, in, um, take care or or give the proletariat and the working class, quote unquote, the power instead. So then you ended up with this feudal class that was driven into poverty. You know. Yes. Um, I get what you're saying. I think my defense of Marx in that case would just be that if you had told Marx, if you went back in time to 1870 and told Karl Marx that the first successful socialist revolution would be in Russia, he would have said, what are you talking about? <laughs> really? He, he expected the socialist revolution to happen in countries with advanced industrial economies. He thought that it would happen in um, England and Germany and France. That was what he predicted. He was wrong, obviously. M Marx was wrong about some things. I'm willing to say that, unlike a lot of Marxists. Um, but I think he was wrong in the short term, but correct in the long term. And I, I think that's true today. I, I, and I think that, um, you know, it shows the ultimate failure of uh, ideologies like third worldism or Maoism is that a socialist revolution, you can't really move from a semi-feudal agrarian economy to a socialist economy, for the reason that I said earlier. Yeah. You need the productive forces to be able to actually take care of your entire citizenry. Right. So I, I don't think capitalism can ever end until Western industrialized imperial powers like the United States can be uh, toppled. I don't, I'm trying to think of a nice well, word to say for it, but as, as long as <laughs> capitalist America exists, we will never have, you know, a worldwide socialist paradise. And so for me as an anarchist, the idea is that like the peasants kind of know what they're doing and shouldn't be discounted in the way that they're doing things already on that like local level. You know, you look at <clears throat> capitalist food production and, you know, they say, oh, we can't make enough food, everybody's starving but they have these massive amounts of waste in these capitalist systems of making food and most of the world still or like a huge percentage of the world are fed by peasant farmers at this point yeah you know so like the peasant farmers are feeding people just fine without sort of like this over over intensified industrialization and like efficiency technology um you know right I, no, I agree, and uh, again, I'm I'm not trying to advocate for what the Bolsheviks did in <laughs> terms of industrialization. Yeah. I, just, but you know, to play devil's advocate for them, sure. their thinking was that they needed an industrial advanced economy so that they could compete with. Because I, I didn't know this until just the other day, actually. But shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution, they were invaded by the Allied powers of World War One. They were invaded by the United States and Britain, and uh, Japan, and so I think they very justifiably felt like they were surrounded on all sides, mm. they had enemies everywhere, they needed to protect their, their sovereignty at all costs, mm. and that led to them doing some pretty messed up stuff in the interests of building a massive super economy. Right. So, you know, that's their logic behind it, and that's why I think that having a the first major socialist revolution in a country like Russia was destined to fail, mm. or at least destined to not turn out in the best way. You know, lots of people obviously died. So, 
Yeah, I mean, when you get into these, like, the historical minutiae, it gets really, really messy. And so, like, a lot, I feel like a lot of times the discussion about Marxism v. anarchism or uh, Marxism, or, you know, or, like, communism versus other forms of government and everything can get really bogged down in all of this, like, historical detail, understandably, yeah. you know, because it's like, well, what if this or what if that or what if, the, you know, that um, for me, the going back to sort of the basic tenets of theory, I think theory is really important because I think sort of the same way as like when you stay, you know, rooted in God or divinity or everything, then everything that you do in life comes from that place. Like, if you're coming from a place of, and then you, you know, you do good works out of a place because you feel that need rooted in your divine understanding of life, if for, yeah. for, um, for when you're talking about, like, political theory, it does come down to, to the basic tenets of the theory without, and it doesn't really, you know, in, so, so the other, so the other two, the other two things I was going to say about Marxism is the vanguardism. Um, I think the uh-huh. idea of a revolutionary vanguard is a very bad idea, and I feel like that's been played out over and over and over again throughout the 20th century, is that a revolutionary vanguard ends up very bloody and ends up installing a dictator, and ends up installing a very violent um, society, you know. And kills a lot of anarchists. You'll get, you'll get no, yeah. You'll get no argument from me that uh, vanguardism is not the way to go. And I think Marx would agree with you on that. That yeah. was, I mean, honestly, that's a very Lenin idea. Mm. Um, and I, like I said, I don't dislike. I actually rather like Vladimir Lenin. Um, like I said, I feel like he made some huge mistakes, but I think in his historical context, he did the best he could with what he had. Um, but I do think that history has shown that his ultimate philosophy of building worldwide socialism and what the Bolsheviks wanted to do has been shown to be incorrect. So I think we have that history. And that's you know kind of my take on the Soviet Union and 20th century socialist states in general is look at what they did, look at them in their context. There's a lot to learn from them. Yeah. There's a lot to learn about what not to do. Yeah. So... Yeah. So then, like, so that I mean, that does lead to. I don't think vanguardism is an integral part of Marxism. No, I feel like. I don't know. Really, I don't know. Well, that's good. Really, I mean, it's. I mean, you're not going to find it anywhere in the writings of Karl Marx or Friedrich Engels. Hmm. So I guess vanguardism maybe comes from the idea of the dictatorship of the proletariat, though. Right, because how do you yes, how do you does. install a dictator? You how do you install a dictatorship of any kind without sort of a group of people, you know, making the coup or in, installing the dictator? Right. Right. I mean, the dictatorship of the proletariat, though, I don't. I didn't intend it to be an actual literal dictator. Um, Marx's understanding of the state is that the state is by definition a dictatorship of one class over another class. As long as there's class society, there will be a dictatorship. And in in Marxist understanding, capitalism and the society we live in today is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. So even though we don't necessarily have a dictator, and maybe we do with Trump in the White House in a few years, but 
even if we don't have an actual strongman dictator who's literally consolidating all of his power and abolishing term limits, our society functions as a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. So I think you can have, and it, I mean, it sounds counterintuitive to Americans because we're used to thinking of dictator in terms of, you know, Stalin, Hitler, and Mussolini. But I think you can have a very democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and still have a, some type of state that maintains that. I just don't, I don't feel like you can use the word dictatorship without it being just uh, absolutely authoritarian in any sense. And it's sort of a, I, I feel like it's sort of a, I don't think you can... <laughs> I, I don't know, just... Uh, I, I, no, I, I agree, you know, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm higher on, <laughs> I'm more vertical on the uh, yeah. political compass than you are. I don't think all authoritarianism is bad, and that's just, right. you know, that's one of the way, things that we're just going to have to agree to disagree on. I think that in a revolutionary situation where you are going to have a reaction, there's going to need to be some centralized power in order to consolidate that and defend the revolution. And again, I, this is sounding very Leninist. I think there are other ways to go about it than the Bolsheviks did. I think that they tried one way, they were the first to do it, so obviously mm -hmm. they weren't gonna get it right on the first time. But I think that a new movement can learn from their mistakes and mm -hmm. do it better if it ever happens again, I when guess, it happens again. I guess I feel like it's naive to think that there can ever be a conglomeration of power without it being ultimately corrupting and failing. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, history might prove you right. I, I, well, that's a problem. I, I don't know. Here's my problem, though, is that I hope that if history repeats itself, then there will be a moment in this revolutionary movement where um, some group of more authoritarian communists decides that the left, of the, they know better than all the other leftists and, like, murder us all in our sleep. Like yeah, so right. so like it's 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 a little bit more intense and more personal for me to s sort of see this theory be like, well, you know, they messed up, they'll do it better next time. It's like, is it really gonna do better next time if you still have this model? It's like it's like a direct threat to my ability to n be both a revolutionary and a, you know, like, I mean, if like right now we like to talk a lot about this theory as if it's just kind of fun on paper and we can chat about it over the fire or whatever but like there are real world consequences to the idea of these conglomeration of powers and these sort of like a, any group of people that think that they know better than everybody else um and so sure. so you know my question i guess my question for communists and i have i have good friends that are communists like there are awesome communists obviously there's been a lot of comrades there's been a lot of good work done between communists and anarchists but I feel like it is within the sort of the good communists role in the revolution to stop the creation of Mussolini's and to like make sure that to stop leftist fascist creep you know as as the world around us becomes more authoritarian it can seep into all of us and how all of us function so like it's not horseshoe theory but the left it right. can move right, and I think it does move from the left to the right through communism. So in a way that as an anarchist, I can't really access those spaces of tankies, of people saying that Stalin was an okay guy. Like, I think you really do need to step in and stop when people say that Stalin is all right. Stalin was not all right.
Stalin was in charge of major ethnic ca cleansing campaigns. Like, he was basically a fascist. And so I really worry about this normalization of just talking about theory and talking about these um, communist dictators that were incredibly violent, incredibly, that you know, in charge of these, like, ethnic cleansing, in charge of these things, as if it doesn't have real-world consequences moving into what could be a very scary time in the world, you know? So I would like to see communists really not putting up with tanky stuff, like really calling out their comrades when they're starting to normalize these people, saying, you know, like, oh, well, they didn't do that well, like, it was a small price to pay, it was not a small price to pay, you know? Like, so... Right. I mean, I think it's hard for me because... Um, there are, I mean, tankies do make up a lot of uh, the worldwide communist movement outside of the West. There are a lot of what we would call tankies in countries like China and Vietnam. And uh, so, uh, you know, I hesitate to tell those people what type of ideology they should follow. For Western leftists, um, what, I mean, what I would just wish the tankies would see is that I'm obviously I'm never going to change their mind. You're never going to change their mind. They're never going to have that eureka moment where they say, you know what, you're right. Stalin was a jerk. But I want them to, I th and I think most of them can realize that they're not helping. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, my for them, it, go ahead. Uh, my concern is less about people who are already hardcore, like setting their ways tankies. And people, people who are new and newer to the movement, just finding out about these, just dabbling in communism, and like those are people that we need to be as more established people, as more knowledgeable people, just like making sure are being steered away from the sort of really more authoritarian, um, you know, quote unquote left, you know, like the, so. There's a lot of work that can be done in our own circles. Um, that's not just trying to argue with tankies on it. Like, don't, like, I get that. Like, you really can't argue with a hardcore tanky, but there's a whole lot of middle ground where people are kind of, like, playing around with different ideas and, like, starting to call yourself a Marxist-Leninist. It's like, do you know who Lenin was? Like, talking, just sort of talking about Stalinism or, like, talking about Maoism and talking about, like, sort of that more fluffy theory about it. It's like, do you understand what Mao was? Have you looked at any of the history of the Cultural Revolution? Do you, like, are you clear about what you're talking about? Because if you... You know what I mean? So, like, that's sort of our job, you know, because I worry when I see a young kid, you know, I mean, not young kid, but, you know, late teens, early 20s is saying, like, oh, you know, I think I'm a Maoist. It's like, I don't know if you know what that means. I think you're maybe reading the theory without understanding the historical context. And as we were talking about earlier, like with Jesus, like you have to under, like historical context is incredibly important and historical realities are incredibly important as well. You know what I mean? Right. So do you, and I'm not trying to, like, lead you into an answer, because like I said earlier, I try to stay agnostic on this stuff because I don't have the time or the resources to delve extremely deeply into it so that I can make up my own mind. But do you think there's anything to be said for the tanky argument that a lot of what we think we know about people like Stalin and Mao is propagandized because of our Western bias against the USSR and socialist states in the 20th century? I mean, the left always has to deal with propaganda. I mean, that's a good point to bring up, but I think it's very well established in historical record at this point, the sorts of um, ethnic cleansing and the sorts of horrific genocidal um, movements that are, that are connected directly with 
these um, people. You know, you can say like, oh, but look at all the people who loved Mao. Look at all the people who loved all these, you know. But there will always be people who, in any society, you know, like there's Trumpettes, there's Trumpers, you know, like that, that, uh, that agree with everything sure. he says, you know. So like pointing to the fact that the people loved him, it's like what people? The people that are left that were not <laughs> murdered, you know. So um, yeah. I, I hear that, but I think it really is um, not rooted in historical fact. And I, I, I'm going to be hard-pressed to be told that all of that is propaganda. Um, I, I don't think that's well-researched. Right. So. Okay. I just wanted to hear your opinion. Like, as I stay, I'm not choosing a side on that specific issue See, until I I'm, can look at the historical yeah. data myself. Because I, I don't yeah. trust, I don't trust the tankies to be like, Stalin was Jesus himself, and I don't trust... <laughs> you know, conservatives in America who say Stalin literally killed a billion people. Like, so until I can look at the history, and I haven't, I've spent more of my time focusing on the history behind Christianity right, than right. I have on the history of 20th century socialism. Yeah. I read a lot of theory. I haven't read a lot of history. So I guess, I guess my ask is that people do read the history and for themselves and like, there are good sources and not be so just, you know, casual about throwing out these names like Mao and Stalin. You know what I mean? I agree. Well, just like I said to the tank, you're not helping. No, you're not helping anybody when you do that. Yeah, exactly. You're not helping build socialism. You're not helping. It's just move on. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah. yeah. What I would say on the issue of authoritarianism is that I, I, I mean, I think that it's hard to classify. I don't want to classify Jesus, like, you know, say, oh, Jesus was a Marxist before Marx, or Jesus was an anarchist before Kropotkin. But what I will say is, I mean, everything you said earlier about the movement, um, kind of living its principles before the actual world was created that way. I forget the exact phrase you used, but I I really liked it. Prefigurative. Prefigurative Um, living. Prefigurative, yeah. I really like that. I I mean, I I agree with that. But um, there's also, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Reza Aslan, but he stresses when he talks about the historical Jesus is that, you know, you often hear kind of the orphaned quote where Jesus says, you know, the last will be first. But you rarely hear with any serious discussion the second half of that quote, which is, the first shall be last. So it's not just making everybody equal, it's reversing the social order. And that, to me, is how I see the dictatorship of the proletariat. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's arguable in some of the texts, you know, that Jesus was an authoritarian as far as God is first always and God is in right. in ways, you know, like a dictator. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so, I mean, the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that authoritarian Jesus is in there. We can't just uh, redwash, blackwash. <laughs> whitewash <laughs> the whitewash Jesus entirely in the way that we want to in the same way that authoritarians find arguments for him 
on the right, you know. Right. So. Which is why I just think, you know, the issue of authoritarianism in the state is something that the left will have to deal with at some point in a very um, meaningful way. But I think it ultimately we can't lose focus of the fact that we do want the same thing. I don't even think that Stalin, you know, even if you believe everything that was ever said about him, I think that Stalin and all the worst, maybe not, maybe not people like Pol Pot or, or the guy from Albania, but, you know, most of those people did truly believe that they were building to that stateless, classless, moneyless society. They might have been totally wrong <laughs> that they were doing it in the right way. And they, you know, they might, you know, history has to judge you by your actions as much as your intentions. So this is not a defense of everything, of anything they did. But I do think that most of them were trying and believed they were doing the right thing. And all that that means for us today is that we need to keep in mind as the left that we do all want the same thing. And that's how we unite and come up with compromises and figure out how to build the type of society that we all want. Yeah, that was a really nice way to put that. (laughs) Um, Well, it has been an hour. Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, not really. I kind of ended on a high note there. Yeah, um, <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to bring up? or? Let's see. I had a quote that I was going to bring up at some point. Um, <laughs> let's see if I... Well, this doesn't actually make sense anymore. In the <laughs> from, where okay. our, from where our from where our conversation okay one last quick on. question what uh what translation of the bible do you prefer do you use Ooh, so for um when i'm reading psalms or wisdom literature i like just the straight up king james but when i'm studying i have the nrsv okay what about have you? you ever tried the rsv the rsv I yeah i haven't even heard of the rsv what is that so the RSV is what came before the NRSV, and it, t- it had the same translation principles as the NRSV, where it wanted it to be scholarly and neutral and literal, but it kept a lot of the, like, flowery prose of the King James Version, so oh. it still has, like, the vows, and it's, it's, like a, it's like a more poetic version of uh, the NRSV. That's cool. I should look into it. What do you, what do you use? I have um, the I have that one. I have the RSV and I have the NRSV. There's been there's some quotes that are really nice in the um, the way that it's written are really nice in the um, <laughs> English Standard Version. Is that what? Yeah, what? Um, I used to use that one, and then I, I looked into kind of how it was made, and it was kind it was almost. I mean, the translators kind of had the motive of correcting what they saw as liberalism within the NRSV or secularism. That's gross. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, which, uh, version of capital do you use? You know what? Uh, I bought, I bought one on Amazon. I don't even know. It was, it looks very shoddily put together and it's very, it's filled with like misspellings and so probably some kind of bootleg version. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That's great. 
I use a lot of um, yeah. Kropotkin and uh, Bakunin on the internet. Yeah, PDF, PDFs are pretty great. I know. Uh, you can find almost anything, any of this literature on the internet, which yeah. is great. Especially anarchist literature, because, like, property is not, like, a thing that we like, so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's the anarchist internet archive. I, I don't know if it's called that, but I know there's the Marxist internet archive, where you can get almost any Marxist text ever written for free through a browser. And I know that there is a counter, an anarchist counterpart to that, but I can't remember what it's called. It's the anarchist library. I think is what you're talking okay, about. Okay, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, anybody listening, go online and read up. Yep, we need to study up, and I need to study up on my history too. And uh, so we, we can do. have these we can have these tough discussions about Russia and <laughs> Spain. <laughs> do you guys, yeah. anybody, anybody want to talk about Spain? We didn't get into that at all. No, we didn't. We didn't talk about Spain. So, too soon. Too soon. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there is going to be, coming out, I think, from AK Press, um, there's going to be a book all about all of the times anarchists have been murdered by other leftists. <laughs> so that'll be a fun read. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, but some I, light, like a, it's like a bathroom book, you know, keep it in there. And yeah, I, I will. Like a I coffee will. table book. <laughs> yeah, people come over like, wow. Wow, a little light <laughs> reading. And um, I will, maybe I'll go read some of Lenin's writings, just so I know better exactly what I'm talking about. I'll do that for you. And I would appreciate it. I'm actually going to start reading my first Kropotkin tomorrow because I joined an anarchist reading group. Did See, you? I'm branching Fine. out. Yeah, and Capital's really hard to read. But I should do it. Huh? It's so hard to read. I <laughs> had three. I I tried three. My third try was the third time's the charm. I finally, once you get past the first like three chapters, it gets a lot easier. But he put all the hardest stuff right at the beginning. Here's the thing about uh, communist versus anarchist literature is I think anarchists, because of this um, sort of dedication to the peasant class have often times made a real concerted effort to have it be in simple language. How there's and then communists yeah. are like not so much with that. I have a really hard time reading communist text. And then it feels like a lot of times you can get into this like intellectual war with communists because I haven't I don't know the difference between Trotskyists and the da 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 because the texts are just like so <laughs> difficult to read, you know? <laughs> Marx was a super tough writer. Um I think that's a huge problem for any Marxist movement, is making the literature and theory accessible. I think we need a combination of new translations and a combination of, like, modern writers who are willing to sift through something like Capital and make, like, a Cliff Notes version of it. Yeah. Um, but if you're interested, Engels was a much better writer than Marx, and his stuff is way more accessible. Yeah. I prefer Engels to Marx, okay. to be perfectly honest. I, uh, I've read Engels' books and been, like, really into them, like I would with, like, a book that I'm just reading for pleasure. Like, I really just enjoyed reading them. And with Marx, it always feels like homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. I'll look and that's That's a good tip. That's a good tip because, like, I've been, like, it does feel like homework. It's like, I know I need to read more communist literature. Like, I just, like, yep. look at it and I'm like, I don't want to. <laughs> so I'll look, into, I'll look into Engels. That sounds good. The Origin of the Family is, like, maybe my favorite book ever. And uh, 
that's where you really start to understand historical materialism. So that's the book that I think every leftist should read, whether you're anarchist, communist. If you're going to only read one Marxist text, read The Origin of the Family. Hmm. I was trying to think about if you're going to read one anarchist text, but it's like then I got a little overwhelmed. It's like, oh man, because <laughs> anarchism <laughs> has developed a lot. But um, probably... Bread book, probably. Probably... Um, I don't know, probably... The Soul of Man Under Socialism. Probably Kropotkin, I guess, maybe. Or just go all the way back to the beginning and read the Bakunin, so you can... I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I don't know. Are you are you sure it's not the ego and its own? No. No egoism. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Individualist anarchy yeah. versus, versus the communist anarchy, so... Yeah, we have our own. We have our own vanguards, actually. The propaganda of the deed is basically sure. propaganda of the deed is basically a vanguardist idea. It's you know what I mean. It's the idea that you um, like. I mean, yeah. kind of. I mean, kind of. It's like you jumpstart the revolution via enlightened a few enlightened folks like taking a specific act. Right, it, it right. Be, you know. Yeah, it's like a mix of vanguardism and accelerationism. So, are you not a fan of Emma Goldman? Uh, Emma Goldman's pretty cool. Emma Goldman, well, here's the thing about a lot of these anarchists that are, like, well-known for propaganda of the deed stuff, is that they, you have to look at their, you have to look at them in context of their entire life and development as revolutionaries, because many of them started, um, as, you know, um, Malatesta and Berkman and Goldman, if you look at, well, I mean, Goldman, if you look at how they developed as revolutionaries, started as, like, hardcore propaganda of the deed types, but then moved away yeah. from that after, especially like, like um, Malatesta had a lot of problems with propaganda of the deed stuff in Italy in the late 1800s, and he changed his mind, and became more of an anarcho-socialist, and started working in like these like community building types of like anarchism. And then right. Alexander Berkman totally changed his mind about propaganda of the deed after seeing Russia, and like Emma Goldman was kind of along with him on that one. But those like their later writings aren't as famous as their earlier writings, you know. So. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I visited Emma Goldman's grave recently. She's buried not very far from where I live. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I'm more of a fan, like, honestly, I'm more of a fan of Lucy Parsons than Emma Goldman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Lucy Parsons, if you don't know Lucy Parsons, like, actually, Emma Goldman and Lucy Parsons, like, went at it. They did not get along very well. (laughs) Yeah. But her writings are just so delicious to read, so poetic. She's just such a, like wonderful writer I love reading like that's something that I like I enjoy reading Lucy Parsons for sure like I'll just you know what I mean so yeah I will check her out I've never read any of her writings I know a bit about her but well I mean you probably know less about her because that's, uh, that's my list because she's black so like she's not as famous right um Angela Davis wrote about her in women racing class and that's why I was first kind of I think, introduced to who she was yeah but I haven't yeah. read her She's totally rad. Um, yeah, well, we just kept talking because it got interesting again. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. yeah, no, I really enjoyed the conversation. I did, too. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really, I'm really glad that we um, finally got this together. I know you were super patient waiting for um, me a, a, having um, getting time to get you on the show, so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It was my, like I said, it was my honor. I'm a big fan. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, keep writing, and I'll keep reading your reading your writing, and I uh, hope we stay in touch. And yep, keep interviewing. Thanks yeah. for the talk, comrade. All right. Cool. Talk to you later.
Bye. Bye.